It's not every day you get to chat to a former COO of Google, but Ben Legg, your 40-minute mentor today, is exactly that. Ben spent the first 10 years of his career in the British Army, building bomb-proof structures and occasionally arm-wrestling members of the French Foreign Legion. He successfully transitioned into business, working with some of the most exciting and dynamic brands in the world. Coca-Cola, Google, the high-growth scale-up Ola, and Ad Knowledge, which he grew into one of the largest ad tech companies in the US. Since then, Ben has built a portfolio career for himself, which inspired him to start up the Portfolio Collective, a community for portfolio professionals. In this episode, we explore the many sides of Ben's career to date and what he's learned along the way, including the skills that he was able to leverage from the military into business, such as the ability to bring order to chaos and stay calm under pressure, how he transitioned from a commercial role at Coca-Cola to become COO for Google, and what it was like to work alongside the Google co-founders. And finally, the key things you need to consider when you're recruiting a high-performance team. It was fascinating talking to Ben, who is one of the most impressive and productive leaders I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing. He is a real force of nature, with so much knowledge and experience to share. So, if you're looking to switch sectors, start a business, or you're considering becoming a portfolio professional like him, I know you'll get so much from Ben's insights and fantastic career advice. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with the brilliant Ben Legg. Ben, thank you very much for joining us on the 40 Minute Mentor today. I would love to start, as we always do, with a 30 second overview of your CV, please. 30 seconds. Okay. I'm a civil engineer. I spent 10 years as a British army officer traveling around the world, building things and blowing things up. Then 10 years in what you call big business. So strategy consultant McKinsey, followed by uh, some time at Coca-Cola around the world. Then just over a decade in what you would call big tech or unicorn land or something. So I was the CEO of Google Europe and then spent the rest of the decade in various uh, technology CEO jobs. Wow. That was incredibly succinct and as close to 30 seconds, I think, as we've ever got. Well done. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, you've had a, an illustrious career and I'm really looking forward to discussing it. But uh, I, I wanted to start at the, the beginning, really. What, can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about the younger Ben Legg? What, what did you aspire to be when you were growing up and, and did you always have that entrepreneurial streak? Probably. I guess I was always ambitious. I grew up maybe slightly odd compared to some kids, but my favorite books were biographies. So I'd read biographies of great kings, prime ministers, generals, whatever it might be, and kind of thought, I want to be like that one day. I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but I started thinking I want to be in the army uh, as a kid. Uh, I'm not from a military family. My dad was an accountant. Mum was a teacher. But yeah, I just kind of thought it sounded exciting. So even when I went into the army, I kind of thought, you know, one day maybe I'd like to be a general, or maybe I'll leave and try and be a CEO or a, or a politician or something like that. I also, as a kid, it's just a funny aside, I always had side hustles. So I guess that's an okay. entrepreneurial spirit. Buying things, selling them, building things, making things. One of the reasons I liked my side hustle is so that I could subscribe to The Economist from um, my early teenage years. Fantastic. Um, so that was part of my motivation. <laughs> Good stuff. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I must admit, I was the same in terms of uh, always a big fan of biographies of, of whether it's Muhammad Ali, as sports people or or leaders in general. So I, I definitely I get that completely. Uh, well, you, you mentioned you went into the army and spent over 10 years and, and did posts at the likes of Germany, Canada, Northern Ireland, Bosnia. So I'm sure you would have seen some some interesting and, 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 and had some challenging times. What, what 
would you say are the, the sort of key skills that you picked up in that time at the army and how has that helped you in your subsequent career? Yeah, so so it's hard to say what is it you learn in the army versus what are you selected for to join the army. But if I talk about myself or other ex-military people going into business life, what do most of us have in, have in common? Number one, I think, is just integrity. Is like if you say you're going to do something, you do it. You find uh, you know, a lot less flakiness, lack of reliability. Most military people are kind of good for their word. And if they disagree with something, they'll tell you. And if they agree with something, they'll get on with doing it. Linked to that is another to just like project management. You know, the, the army is all about getting stuff done and generally in a hurry without accepting no as an answer. So when you've got a task to do, you just work it out. Other things, I think when you've been to war, you are generally calmer. Um, mm. like there's no problem in business that it might lead to people dying. So the worst that happens is the company goes bust or you lose your job. But that's not as bad as dying. And so it kind of gets everything in perspective. Beyond that, I think most people who join the military are adrenaline junkies. So actually startup life and you know, fast growth companies and pivots and all sorts of other things are kind of exciting too. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen from some of my great friends uh, spend time in the, in the military and, and have gone on to do very well in the, in the tech world. And I think it's, it's absolutely right that bringing order to that sort of chaos and, and the, the stress that comes with it is actually, for them, is, is not really that, that big a deal because they've all seen worse. So that's a really good point. You obviously sort of transitioned out of the army and, and went on to have a very successful corporate career and then and career in big tech. What was that transition like for you at the time, though, going back into civilian life? Because I've known from lots of conversations with 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 people that have coming out of the military, it's not always an easy thing to to do. So, what were the sort of challenges that you overcame with that, and and what advice would you have for others doing that transition right now? Yes, I, I kind of got lucky, so I went straight from the army to McKinsey, which was an almost unheard of step, especially since I didn't have an MBA. I actually did have half an MBA. I studied for MBA distance learning in Bosnia during the war, so. I alternated my evenings between getting drunk with the French Foreign Legion and arm wrestling or doing an MBA. Um, so I had about half an MBA at the, at the end of Bosnia, but between family life and military life, I ended up not finishing it. But uh, it, I was lucky that when I, I left, I was thinking consulting would be a great transition from the army to a business life because mm. you get to, I, I had two kids by the time I left the army, I couldn't afford to go and do an MBA, but you basically get to learn about lots of aspects of business. You get great mentorship, great training. Your consulting is known for that. So randomly, the first consultant you applied to was McKinsey, which with hindsight was probably stupid as like my odds were so bad. But just a friend of a friend said, you should think about McKinsey. They like engineers and stuff, you know, so fine. So I applied and it was good time. If I'd done it a year early, I wouldn't have got in. I don't think right. because I didn't have the MBA, et cetera. But McKinsey had got to a point where they said, we're hiring too many people out of the same mold. It's like, you know, typically engineering or economics undergrad. Then they'd either go off to Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or maybe Procter & Gamble to do some kind of yeah. fancy pants, you know, fast track career, then an MBA and then back into McKinsey. And it was very narrow. And they said, we need more diversity. Where do we find people who might fit the ethos, but don't have that background? And they said, you know, let's try military, let's try doctors and let's try lawyers and, and hire a, a one or two of each and see how they work out. So I was the experiment. Um, I kind of got lucky. Now, yeah, one thing on that is since then, once it worked out with me, they said, you know, you're working out, can you find more ex-military people to come to me? Oh, great. Like those, those types. So I would say one great career path in post-military is consulting. I think it, it builds on your project management skills and fast mm. pace. And, and there's a lot of cultural similarities, uh, interestingly, between military and consulting. 
but you learn about business, which is your big game yeah. when you leave. You, you, you know, when you leave the military, you know a lot about leadership and project management and war and politics, but not just how to make money and how to do marketing and stuff like that. So it's kind of try and find a career that's at least 50% overlap with what you can already do, but has you know a decent bit of stretch in terms of learning. Mm. Great advice. Now, I think that's really, really helpful. And after your stint in consulting, you went on to various leadership roles in in, in Coca-Cola initially, and then you became European CEO at Google, which must have been a, a, an amazing experience. What led you to Google and how did you make that switch from more commercial roles into a COO role? Yeah. So um, each one of my career steps looks odd to when you just read the CV and then it kind of Makes sense. So, so McKinsey's Coca-Cola was an interesting one, which basically I was kind of thinking, right, I've loved my time at McKinsey, learned a lot, don't want to be a consultant forever, I want to be a CEO one day. And so I was thinking, right, the right next step would be either biz dev or MD of a business unit in a big company. Mm. So I had a few nice interviews lining up quite well and randomly saw a job uh, ad for Director of Training and Development for Coca-Cola Hellenic Bottling, which is like a big part of Coca-Cola, based in Athens. And I thought, on the one hand, it's Coca-Cola, it's in Athens, it's probably a pampered expat job. Uh, I'm quite good at training and development, I quite like it. But on the other, it's HR. I don't want to work in HR. So I thought, I'll go along for the interview practice, but, you know, don't really want it. Went along, met the lady who would be my boss. She was the, the group HR director. And we really got on well. And she said, you're not sure, are you? I said, no. Said, right, the CEO's in the next room. Do you want to meet him? So every day you get to meet you know, the CEO of a company worth tens of billions. So yeah, sure, of course I do. And he said, okay, I get your point. I don't have a chief of staff. Do you want that? I said, yeah. He said, I don't have a head of strategy. Do you want to do strategy for us too? I said, I'll take it. I said, yeah, you'll have to write my presentations and now and again fly around on a private jet. I said, yeah, I'm sure I can cope with that. <laughs> uh, so I ended up with this hybrid job that was about 60% training and development and 40% helping the CEO be more productive. And so I guess it's kind of a, an interesting staff job, probably good prep, by the way, for the later job at Google. There, but I, I did do a deal with the CEO uh, at Coke, which is if I do well, I'd like PL responsibility. So mm-hmm. after a couple of years in Greece, traveling around all over the place, helping build a better company, I w- went around sales and marketing Coca-Cola Poland, then sales and marketing in Coca-Cola India, which was a big turnaround, right. et cetera. So I was thinking my career is on a good track here. I'm doing well. I'm enjoying the kind of expat life, you know, traveling around the world, building organizations for Coke. And then one day, randomly, I got a phone call from Google. And I was kind of lying by my swimming pool in Delhi, minding my own business on a Sunday. And Google called and said, do you want to be, it was an issue, it was the COO of UK Benelux in Ireland. So it's like mm-hmm. half of European revenue. Uh, and I said, why me? I'm selling fizzy drinks in India. And yeah. you want someone to be like the <laughs> number two in a big chunk of Google. And they told me the story, which kind of made sense then, which is they said, okay, there's a new leader uh, at Coca-Cola, uh, Coca-Cola, at Google for UK Benelux Island. And he's not very impressed by what he's found. He's just flown over from America and the organization is chaotic. They're, they're growing revenue 100% a year, but no one can explain why. Um, mm. And you know, just there's a lack of discipline. There's a lack of understanding of strategy. Communication's broken down between engineering and the business side of things. And he wants someone to help him fix all of that and build a world-class organization. And his background, he was a lawyer, American guy, then he worked for a Supreme Court judge, then did an MBA, then worked at McKinsey, but he'd never got dirt onto his fingernails ever. So he just wanted someone who had. So he said, right, what I'm looking for is A, an ex-strategy consultant, because Google didn't have a strategy for how to make money. So he needs someone to write the strategy for how Google makes money. B, an engineer. 
so that there was someone on the business side of Google who could talk to the engineers because mm. it's saying engineers only respect other engineers. It's probably <laughs> true. I'm actually a civil engineer, so I don't do much code, but I, I can understand it and fake it a bit. See someone who's done senior sales and marketing jobs because really what we had to do in Europe was build a professional sales account management and partnerships organization to sell a new type of marketing search to a bunch of non-digital CMOs. And D, ideally, I want someone who's ex-military to kick some butt. In the whole world, they found one person with all all (laughs) those things, and that was me lying by my swimming pool in Delhi. So they told me that story, and I thought that sounds too good to be true. As it happens, Mm -hmm. I was going to be back in the UK for Christmas a few weeks later anyway, so I'll come in for interview. They lined up interviews back to back that day, maybe an offer before I left the office. I love that. And I think given what we do, a lot of COO search, we have a lot of aspiring COOs in our network. When you think back to, to, to that, those early days in Google, what were the skills that you relied upon most in those early days? And, and was there anything that you wish someone had told you going into that role? You know, if, if we could transport ourselves back, was there any advice that would be super helpful? The second one's hard, so I'll answer the first one straight away. So I think the biggest thing that led to success at Google for me and my team, et cetera, was really, really, really understanding how Google makes money. And by say understanding, I had to actually write the plan because no one actually could explain it to me. But say to finally write, here's how we monetize search. Here's how we monetize YouTube. Here's how we monetize maps. Here's how we monetize local. And kind of saying, we actually had this thing called a revenue tree, which is what are all the levers that can be driven and who pulls what lever and what should be done by engineering versus sales, versus marketing, versus you know um, other, et cetera. So really getting clear. And then with almost everything of the next three years saying, okay, we've got overwhelming priorities or not enough resources is always the case. Let's go back to those revenue trees and say, how are we progressing versus the plan? You know, what are all the levers we could pull? Which ones are we going to focus on this quarter? You know, what work will we do? Who's going to do it? What does good look like? And so it's kind of starting with the, the vision. And the vision wasn't at the very high level, organize the world's information. That's Google total. It's given all this amazing traffic, what's the best way to make money from it? That was kind yeah. of the vision for, for, for me and the team. And then just kept coming back to that and turning into just systematic actions. What do you do on a mm. quarterly basis? What do you do on a weekly basis? What should org structures look like? What should incentives look like? You know, what training do we need? How do we work more effectively with engineering, whatever it might be? So that was kind of that, just that systematic, joined up, logical approach to basically making money. Um, yeah. monetizing audience. So that was really at the heart of success is anytime everyone said, I need a decision, I need to prioritize, I need resourcing. That's okay. I've got a mental framework for deciding you know, what does or doesn't need mm. to happen. In terms of saying, if I went back, what would I need to know or do differently? It's a tricky one because in general, it was a great time in which you know, mm. um, so much went well. Or were there any particular challenges that, you know, uh, were there any, I'm sure there were some stressful days. Uh, was there anything particular? Yeah, there were out? loads. <laughs> a fun one, as I'd say, I'd say to myself back then, always carry a wash bag with you because there were times when I was summoned to Mountain View by Eric Schmidt, uh, literally oh, leaving wow. off his go to Heathrow now. See you tomorrow. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I had another fun one. For some reason, that, that talking about flying is uh, triggered another one, which is if you're offered a place to go on Larry and Sergey's plane, take it. Yeah. Okay. Another one. So at some stage, <laughs> we were at a conference in Barcelona, and they said, "Hey, there's a spare seat on on the plane. On yeah, you know, this is their fancy jet that had table tennis and stuff on. Uh, do you want a seat?" And I said, "Which stupid me?" I said, "Which airport are you flying to?" And they said, "City." I said, "My car's at Gatwick." 
no, I'll, I'll, you know, it's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll take it another time. My roots never coincided with uh, their roots ever again, it. so I never went got on their plane. <laughs> Um, I mean, it must have been amazing working with such impressive entrepreneurs, I mean, legends of, of technology. Did did you take much from their leadership style? How was that experience working with people like that? Yeah, I mean, there's loads. So it's kind of, I, I worked very very closely with actually a lot of the, the smart people, probably of Larry and Sergey, who are the founders of Google and Eric Schmidt. I worked much more with Eric because they were much more focused on changing the world through some kind of crazy tech that was unproven. Mm-hmm. Eric was kind of trying to join their vision for reinventing the world with, you know, running an effective organization. The one thing I've probably learned more of is that it's great to have a philosophy on life, not just a plan. So I, I give you an example, which is one of the problems we were trying to solve, this comes back to the revenue tree, is we said CPC, so cost per click on Google, could be significantly higher if websites could improve their conversion rate because they've got really bad conversion rate. And we actually had access to all the Google Analytics data and saw some websites convert to, you know, three or four times their competitors. Imagine if we can go out to all these companies and help them improve their conversion rate by just designing better websites, quite frankly. And so we worked out what to do, and we ran these amazing pilots with companies like Next, you know, and really dramatically improved their, uh, their website conversion rates and presented to Larry and Sergey and Eric and said, um, we've worked out what to do. The problem is, not much of this can be solved through product. We probably need to build Google Consulting. Why do we say that? So there were some product problems. People weren't installing analytics properly or using it properly and things like that. So he said, fine, I love all that. Give your list to Google Analytics. That is their priority list until it's fixed. So that's kind of cool to have a massive influence on Google mm-hmm. Analytics. But we said the problem is you actually do need to go in and brainstorm what are all the tests you could run and how do you mm-hmm. prioritize them and how do you resource those tests and how do you judge what good looks like? That's a consulting process, not a technology play. And so I, I, I had this vision of, you know, forming Google Consulting, me being the founder of Google Consulting. Yeah, it sounds fun. Mm-hmm. And Larry said, uh, it was kind of annoyed me at the time, but it's very wise. He said, no, we're not building a, a, a consulting organization. He said, IBM built a consulting organization, and now they have a vested interest in making bad technology that requires consultants to install. Wow, so interesting. He said, no, yeah. Yeah, we will absolutely make better products. Give you know, all your product wish list to anyone in Google who runs product. Mm. You'll get what you want. But in terms of consulting, teach what you know to the consultancies and they'll yeah. help their clients. Brilliant. And obviously, I was kind of a bit grumpy at least behind the face. <laughs> I you know, kept my skip smiling. But actually, with hindsight, I think it does make sense. It's like he had this yeah. philosophy, which is we are a tech company. So another part mm. of that philosophy is to try. I don't know if they've managed it since I left to always have over 50% of headcount being in product or engineering, as opposed to sales, marketing, account management, mm. et cetera, because it keeps the core DNA of the company, technology and innovation, as opposed to service uh, or whatever it might be. Not that service doesn't matter, but it's a, mm. yeah, most tech companies end up accidentally becoming service companies over time. Yeah, and yeah. That, and I think he was right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that, that point around staying true to your principles in the in the original ethos is really 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 interesting well you you moved on i guess you ultimately moved on to what you you said you always wanted to be a ceo and and and, it, and moved into ad tech and as a ceo so that's another transition that not all coos do end up making so what were the biggest differences for you from being a coo to being in the hot seat uh, and how did you bridge that gap yeah you're right so so essentially i've been the CEO depending on how you define it, four or five jobs in a row. So when I was in Coca-Cola Poland, I was the number two in Coca-Cola Poland. In Coca-Cola India, I was number two. Then, you know, Google, I was number two in UK, and then number two in Europe. And then actually I went to European directories and became the number two. So I've been number two, like five jobs in a row. It's like, 
is this just my destiny? I'm just a COO <laughs> guy. You know, I, and actually, I quite like it. But part of me said, you know, I should probably go and do, you know, I, I, you know try, a, I have a shot at being a CEO. And what I realized, because I was always being approached by headhunters, is no multi-billion dollar company would take me as a CEO. Even though I had this impressive background, there's something different about being a CEO. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wasn't proven enough. So I thought, okay, if I do become a CEO, I need to do it of a mid-sized company, not you know, a sort of multi-billion dollar company. I really was just approached by this company called Ad Knowledge, which was a kind of group CEO role taking over from the founder. And it was the biggest ad tech company in the US, if you take out Google and Facebook. So there's ad tech companies that have an audience like Google and Facebook. There's ad tech companies that don't have an audience. They were the biggest of the ones that don't have an audience. And I thought, I like ad tech. I like advertising. Uh, I like the problem. And the industry was so smoking hot when I joined. That changed later. Um, you know, that was definitely a roller coaster ride. But in essence, the, the, the job description was ad knowledge grew like crazy for seven years, took a couple of hits. Ad tech's risky. So you know, there's always you know, something growing and something being punched in the face. Had a slightly bumpy year in 2011. And the founder said, I'd like a professional CEO. But if we can get over this bumpy you know, few months in 2011, let's plan on an IPO in the next year or two. I okay. thought, wow, IPOing the biggest ad tech company in the US at a time when ad tech was the hottest industry in, in the US, taking over from a really cool founder, great foundation of smart people and tons of data, but kind of scruffy when it came to sales and marketing and you know, finance and legal and HR and some of the things that public companies need. So I thought, I know how to fix the problems. I like what I'll inherit. I like the idea of taking a private company to IPO. So it's like, whoa, tick, 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 tick. Over the next couple of years, we absolutely got back on track after that bumpy 2011, grew 100 and something percent in two years, making 30 something million EBITDA when most companies were losing money. And so things were going really, really well. And so we said, okay, let's get the, the accountants in, let's get the lawyers in, let's get the bankers in, start planning an IPO. We were six months in when a few other ad tech companies IPO'd and then crashed and burned. And so we just said, right, the IPO is off, you know, where we would have been valued at 20 or 30 times EBITDA, we would have been valued at five. Uh, wow. Because oh, the must have been devastating. Said, the market had said, ad tech's risky. We don't understand it. We don't like it. Even though the ad knowledge strategy, which I still believe in, is we had this portfolio of companies because of the risk almost. So it meant in any one year, there was absolutely every single year, there was a business unit that halved or got killed. But there were a couple of others tripling. And, you know, we managed that. And we also managed moving data between business units, moving talent between business units. So it was a really nice model, but the market just didn't care. So I then spent the next four years effectively breaking up the company and selling off the parts. And then I ended up running Adparlor, which was the, the biggest business unit in, in Adnor. Right. As we broke up the group, I ended up, you know, just stepping in to run the largest business unit that was left for a bit. So it's kind of wow. a, it's an interesting journey that started off so incredibly exciting. And we still ended up, you know, selling the, the parts for significantly more than when I joined, but it wasn't as big a success. I guess partly it was too frothy when I joined and partly just the world grew up and realized that in ad tech, most of the profits flowing to Google and Facebook. Yeah, really interesting. And it's, it's fascinating and to, to go through that kind of growth journey and then almost not quite a turnaround, but the selling off of the different parts. Again, very different experiences, but I guess that le- leads itself to being, a, I guess, a very well-rounded CEO. You, you learn so much more in tough times than in good times. And yeah. It's kind of like, okay, everyone agreed with your strategy. Still didn't work. Yeah. What's mm, it can be? Yeah. That's really interesting. And I guess in this time, this pandemic that we're in, probably a, a lot of uh, founders are going through similar sort of stressful times, uncertainty around the corner. Do you have any advice for anyone listening to this that might be a founder in that 
hot seat at the moment with not, you know, maybe a great business or product or solution, but not a hundred percent sure on what the future looks like. Was there anything from that time that you can lean on? So I, and there's loads, uh, probably the biggest thing is work out where your organization could be and, and the industry too, not just the organization, but what is your vision for the industry in say five years time? What is the role of your company in that? Even though it might change, have it clearly in your head and just keep lining everything up to make that happen. And ultimately, because almost every single industry is going through massive turmoil, there's opportunity everywhere. I've never in my whole career known as much opportunity as now. Yeah, and especially if you're a fast-moving startup, work, you know, every industry is being turned on its head. So what's your vision for that? How will you add value in that world? How will you make it happen? A, it gives motivation and focus and gives you know, team morale, et cetera. But B, that's probably a story you can take to investors. And therefore, don't be obsessed with like trying to optimize an old business model if it doesn't work. You know, if you have to pivot, just pivot. Um, simple as that. Um, yeah, don't be too down unless the cash is running out, then be down and raise some money fast. Uh, one other very tactical tip if you're in the UK is the future fund's really good. So yeah, yeah. I had a couple of companies in my sort of network who've, who've raised money from the future fund in the last few months. But yeah, just, just really say, where, where is the industry going? Where are we going? What's our role in that? How do we differentiate? How do we make it happen? Let's join the dots with whatever resources we can afford and start making that happen. And then you end up with momentum, with motivation, with a story, and that story you can take to investors. Great advice. Thank you, Ben. I'm sure people listening will, will appreciate that. Before we come on to talk about what you're up to at the moment, I just wanted to touch on building high-performing teams, which is obviously something that we're particularly passionate about at JBM. And you you came back to London in, in 2018, if I'm right, from, from the US to launch the Indian ride-sharing company, Ola, in, in the UK. And I know you built a team from the ground up there. So from that experience and from your time at Google and, and, and in ad tech, what are the kind of the tips you have for building a high-performing team? So the first one is just be really rigorous, you know, because mistakes cost so much. It's not just the headhunter fee or whatever. It's the lost momentum because, uh, you know, someone underperformed. It's the fact that eventually you end up firing them or they quit and then you've got to replace them and you lose a few months. So at the senior level, a bad hire can cost you half a million to a million mm-hmm. in, in, in true, absolute sort of cash terms and yeah. probably lose you six months or more in momentum. So yeah. be rigorous, really rigorous in even before you think about an individual, what's the right org structure? What's the right you know, split of responsibilities? Real rigor in terms of the job description, really thought for my, I normally get complimented on my job descriptions, which is kind of an odd thing to be proud of, but I, I'm <laughs> quite proud of it. Really rigorous. And you know, my, my job description go way beyond what's the job. It's like, what does a week look like? What, what, what is the temperament of this person mm. we're looking for, et cetera? It's way yeah. beyond. Because I've seen one of your job descriptions you've written and they are, they're, they're very decent, but they're, they're really, really good because we read a lot of really bad ones and have had to create, have had to create them. And I don't think they're as easy as people think to, to produce. And yours are very detailed, but the, it's the right amount, I think, in terms of very. Yeah, it's probably only three pages or so, but it's three really thoughtful pages. Mm. And then, mm. you know, be really thoughtful on, on the screening process. Don't get too obsessed because someone went to Harvard or because they're really nice. You know, you got to be really rigorous. So, before I even start reading any CVs, I build a spreadsheet for what I'm looking for. And I have criteria and the weightings of the criteria so that everyone that comes through, it's like, okay, how do they stack up versus my criteria before you get too excited by one bit of experience or whatever. I also bring some efficiency to it with maybe survey monkey screening, et cetera. So real, real rigor. And then, and then case studies and other things to, to get to it. So 
although everyone makes hiring mistakes, certainly I've made some, I think my hit rate's been pretty high because of an incredibly rigorous um, hiring process. So that's number one is get the right individuals, but it's also get complementary skills. And sometimes that's harder because simplicity with every open role, you just hire someone who you think can nail that job. But ultimately, you don't want a team of all you know, alpha males. You don't want a team of all analytical, thoughtful, cautious people. You actually want the analytical, thoughtful, cautious people. You want the conquer the world overconfident people. You want the empathetic glue that holds teams together. You, know, you, need, you do need that right balance of worry versus confidence, focus on getting the job done versus focus on team dynamics. And that's harder because there's a temptation with every single role just to get the perfect person for the role, yeah, but not absolutely. just thinking out about the broader team. And the broader team really does matter too. That's great. Again, I completely agree. Uh, do you do you see those companies that you're an advisor to and on the board for, do you see uh, sort of consistently similar mistakes being made from from founders or are, are there are there hiring things that you've seen over the years that we could potentially just flag now for any founder listening so probably the biggest mistake i've seen with startups is often when they hit about series a so they've raised millions maybe even tens of millions and they say right we need some grown-ups now and a lot of companies will say well i need someone for you know i'll get a marketer from png because that's where the world's best marketers live in reality these days, PNG is one of the most backward marketers in the world because they don't have any consumer data. And so, you, you know, and obviously it depends on what you have, but most startups are all about the data. So you probably want to hire a marketer out of e-commerce or gaming or you know, ad tech or martech, but not you know, CPG. Or you get people coming out of big companies that just don't have any hustle. And being in a startup, even when you're 50 employees or 100, you, know, you need to hire someone, just start hiring. Don't take three months to think about it. Uh, you know, start a, you know, you want to run a Facebook campaign, don't wait three months till you've hired someone, launch it in the next five minutes and then start hiring someone. And, and that kind of lack of Definitely. hustle that comes from a lot of people in big companies. Uh, you know, I've seen so many people come in from big organizations to a startup. Everyone expects the world and within three to nine months, they're out. So it's kind of, I'm not anti-people from big companies, but those people from big companies have a lot to learn and a lot to prove, and not all of them are cut out for startup life. So mm-hmm. in essence, you, you, but, but at the same time, you know, startups are looking for a grown-up. <laughs> yeah, they're looking for someone 10 years, 10 years or more older than the founders who has been around the block a few times. So and yeah, I, I think I'm actually helping one of my clients hire now, and they're around 150 people and they're growing like crazy, and they, they want someone as a COO who has done the journey from 100 to 500 people. Because that, there's so many subtleties you learn on that journey. Most people coming out of a great big organization have never done that journey. They've worked in an organization where they inherited you know, the OKR process, they inherited the talent process, they inherited the dashboards, they inherited the incentives. You know, yeah. It's like all they ever did was maybe launch a Christmas campaign um, you know, ad or whatever because everything else is done for them. So that's probably the biggest mistake I've, I've seen. Really great advice. And, that, and that's very... That aligns with what we see, if I'm honest, with 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 our clients. I think uh, uh, there, there is it's an un- understandable to want to hire someone from a bigger business in some ways, but rarely do I see that those hires are successful. And I think it is that hustle and the pace and the the agility and adaptability you need. So that's really really interesting. Well, Ben, uh, and thank you for taking us through your 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 career. But I really want to talk about. Uh, the Here and Now and the Portfolio Collective, um, which you founded this summer, which is a collective of portfolio professionals. Tell us a, a bit about the inspiration behind the business and, and why 
you knew now was the right time in the middle of a pandemic to get it off the ground? It's, it's kind of a bit of a journey. So early in lockdown, so I, I had basically had a portfolio career. I never used to call it that because I didn't know the word, the phrase existed, but I had what I now know is called a portfolio career, which is a mixture of board jobs, mentoring startups, the odd speech, the odd bit of consulting. And going into lockdown, a few things got cancelled. A couple of consulting projects got cancelled, a couple of speeches got cancelled. So I had free time. And as you, I'm sure you'll remember, early in lockdown, a lot of people were nervous. I guess that many are nervous now. I had a lot of people ask me for career advice, just friends and family. And I did what people do on lockdown. I said, hey, you know, let's have a Zoom call. We'll have a career chat and you know, I'll see if I can help. Then I started getting busier as lockdown went on because I ended up with more and more either startup CEOs or their investors saying, can you help out here? And yeah, a lot of companies are either tripling in size and trying to keep the wheels on or need to pivot to survive. And, and, I, and I started you know, winning more clients, board jobs, et cetera. So I said, I need to free up my calendar. So I was doing four, five, six hours a week of career advice. And I said, right, I'll just do a career workshop four o'clock every Wednesday. And if someone says, can I have career advice? I say, here's the link. And I didn't care whether it was one person or 20. It's just like, you know, I do career advice for one hour a week. That's it. Then I discovered this software that said you could charge people for attending a Zoom call. And I thought, that's kind of fun. I'll see what happens. So, so I basically said, obviously, friends and family still come free, but strangers can book and you know, turn off and pay $25. And people started paying. And then I thought, oh, people are paying. I need to actually say something intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I've been doing a lot of research on the future of work, future of education, whatever. And what I realized is that Giving people kind of generic uh, advice, like here's how you polish your LinkedIn, here's how you polish your CV, here's how you apply for a permanent job, wasn't that helpful because there aren't that many permanent jobs and there's 500 people applying for everyone. So I'm not anti-permanent jobs. I thought that's not the best use of my time or the people's time. And there's other people that do it too. But there's a massive shift going on in work towards you know, what I call portfolio work, which is you know, companies shrinking their core headcount, you know, partly because of recession, partly because of you know, strategic flexibility, and then having more interims, more advisory boards, more consultants, more project work, et cetera. So it's more and more, I call it portfolio, lots of different ways to earn money that isn't a permanent job. So I thought that's massive. And, and the OECD forecasts that by 2030, half of all workers in the developed world will effectively be portfolio workers. And that ranges from kind of, you know, the you know, drivers and delivery people at one end with relatively commoditized skills, right up to kind of Tony Blair at the other end, you know, making a fortune mm. in every speech. And so I thought, this is going to be a massive part of the future. Yeah. And everything like is being accelerated by coronavirus. So where it was going to be 2030, it's probably 2021 or something. So it's going to be a big shift. And actually, it's really hard. I mean, it took me a year to get my own portfolio career up and running. I was by then networking with loads of other portfolio professionals and realized, that six to 18 months was the typical time to get a portfolio career up and running. Because it's easy to win one piece of work, which is not easy, but typically people do. But winning enough of those part-time yeah. gigs to add up to pay the bills is much harder. So I was just running this weekly workshop and I was just thinking, this is part of my life, make a few hundred dollars a week, you know, um, for something I would have done anyway. So it's kind of nice. But people kept asking me questions. How should I structure my, should I be a business or a sole trader? How should I pay tax? How should I pay myself? Which are the best work platforms where I'll find work? How much should I charge? I think I've been commoditized. How do I stand out? Whatever, yeah. 50 questions, 100 questions. And I felt a bit useless not being able to answer them properly. Mm. So I started Googling around and thinking, you know, there must be someone out there helping. And there wasn't anyone. Wow. And at some stage, someone, obviously on my workshop from New York, and you know, New York is a very blunt speaker, 
she said, I don't know why you still do other stuff. You should do this for a living. You're good at it and, and the world needs it. And I thought, okay, <laughs> thanks, why not? thanks for that career advice. <laughs> and so I basically said, okay, I am going to form an organization whose mission is to help people set up or optimize portfolio careers. And then mm-hmm. from there, I had to you know, hire a team, build a platform, uh, you know, develop content, et cetera. And it's been a kind of a roller coaster from July, but I'm also self-funding. So I've got to keep my own portfolio career going, A, to fund the business, but B, so that I keep skin in the game and understand, you know, and don't yeah. lose touch with what it means to be a portfolio professional. So I've kind of Absolutely. got two work lives now. I've got my seven more jobs and portfolio career here and the portfolio collective here where I'm trying to help other people, you know, do their own version of what I do. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I've, I attended one of those Zoom calls and was very impressed and learned loads from it. And uh, I, I can totally see why it's been so popular. Uh, and I have every faith that it will kick on to be uh, the, the LinkedIn for, for portfolio careers. And I think we've seen ourselves, I mean, we've discussed our, our new solution SOS, which is, is very much focused around interims in portfolio career, those looking for a portfolio career in the scale up space. So um, we've seen it you know, just more and more in our conversations with candidates you know they want that flexibility and variety so good timing uh, and i think there'll be people listening to this to be honest with you that will be weighing up whether now is the time to do it so w- what's your advice for them that whether or not to go for it or not so uh, there's probably three ways to sort of learn more one uh, on our website it's basically portfolio-collective.com we've got lots of articles on what is a portfolio career yeah you know, how do you launch one how much do you earn how do you get an ned job so it's kind of Thoughtful stuff. You just want to read some articles and think a bit. If you're a bit more serious, you can spare an hour. That workshop is still running. It, I never stopped it. So four o'clock Wednesdays, you can sign up on the site. It is paid, but 25 quid. But if you use the code TPC Friends, that's T P C F all capitals and then uh, the rest in smalls, you can get on for free. We, we charge just so that we can afford to scale our advertising budget. So that's an hour in which we will go deep into what, what it takes. What is a portfolio career and how do you succeed? If you're in a massive hurry. Then actually Monday, the 12th of October, our Catapult course is starting. It's a four-week intensive course. It's about 20 hours a week for four weeks. And it takes you from wherever you are in your journey, which might be no portfolio career or even kind of a, an ad hoc portfolio career, mm-hmm. all the way through every single step you need to do in order to come out with a structured, focused portfolio career with new revenue sources, et cetera. Fantastic. Exciting stuff. I can't wait to see it uh, evolve. And, and, and as uh, as you know, very happy to help in any way I can. So hopefully listeners to this that are, are keen to, to start a portfolio career will sign up and, and get fully involved. And I think that's just probably for some that are listening to this who have aspirations, particularly on the non-exec and, and, and board role perspective and um, you've done a number of these positions so so for anyone that's thinking about that can you just explain a little bit about how the recruitment process would differ from a you know a, a more traditional permanent role to those sorts of opportunities yes yeah, so i actually wrote an article on this again it's on the on the site but the, the, the key summary of board jobs is actually very few go through headhunters so it's only something like 20 yeah. percent go through headhunters most go to people that the companies already know so it might be someone they've worked with before. It might be someone who was doing consulting for them. It might be someone who was mentoring them. You know, it could be someone recommended by an investor. But in essence, it's much more around prove your value first and then at yep. some stage be asked to join a board rather than turn up and expect to get a board job. So my main route to getting board jobs has been either free mentoring to startups and then when they raise money, they ask me to join the board 
or maybe paid consulting for slightly bigger startups. And then at some stage, they asked me to join the board. I did have one that tried to approach me to be the CEO. I said, no, I don't want the CEO job, but I see you don't have a chairman. And that was, that was a way in. So that actually was a headhunter one. But it's, kind of, it's much more around go out and look for companies where you can add value and you have good chemistry with the founder, help them, paid or unpaid, depending on how much mm. money they've got. And then it could well turn into a board job at some stage. But it's very different to, let's say, traditional public company boards, mm. whereby it was a lot about financial responsibility, being a pillar of society, quite frankly, being a bit dull and liking committees. And it's much more around, can you help this company change the world in a meaningful way? And do you have good chemistry with, with the leadership team? And if, if the answer to those two is, is both yes, you could end up landing a board job. Definitely. Ah, oh, that's great. Great advice, Ben. Thank you for that. Well, we are sadly at the end here and I, I wanted to just finish with our three wrap-up questions. Firstly, unsurprisingly, about mentorship. Um, how has mentorship impacted your career and do you have any mentors now or, or have done over the years? I've had loads. So uh, yeah, I've, I've been really lucky to, I don't know whether it's find mentors or mentors find me or just you know connect with people. So probably in every organization I've worked in, whether it's the Army, Coca-Cola, McKinsey, Google, I've sort of had one or two, occasionally maybe three mentors who I would just turn to for advice. So the first thing I'd say is ask. Typically, if people ask you know, someone to be a mentor, there's a, it might not be a guaranteed yes, but there's probably a one in three chance to say yes. You ask yeah. people, you probably found yourself a mentor, so it doesn't hurt to ask. And no one's going to think less of you for asking to be a mentor. They might just say, sorry, I'm too busy. So find them and find the ones that um, yeah, obviously can help take you in the direction you want to go. So not necessarily help you do your day job better, but help you work out your path in life is probably better. So that's number one. In terms of mentoring, I've probably mentored, I don't know, 30 plus people during my career. Uh, some of them end up weekly, but nowadays I'm too busy for much of that. So it's normally like ad hoc once every two or three months, people get a new job offer and say, should I take it? Yes or no? Yeah. Or, I'm negotiating my pay right now. Can I pick your brains about the right opening line or whatever it might be? Or I've been offered an expat job. Talk to me about being an expat, you know, the pros and cons, but mm. random stuff, but just kind of career mentor with other stuff. Yeah. It. But yeah, mentorship is so important. I mean, in the olden days, you know, you might go into a company and, you know, you go on a graduate trainee scheme and every couple of years you get promoted and everyone explains your career to you. Now you manage your own career. And Absolutely. therefore it's good to find mentors that can help you work out the right journey. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, and I think it's something that it just anyone listening to this that hasn't got a mentor should just go out there and, and get one. You know, that I think as I mentor a number of kind of more younger, up and coming recruitment owners, it's also a very beneficial uh, thing that to do. I think I think I've learned lots from my mentees and uh, it's it's um, it's a really worthwhile thing to, to volunteer yourself up for as well. Amazing. Thank you, Ben. And, and just in terms of the next 12 months, tell me a little bit about what's in store for you you and Portfolio Collective? So if the Portfolio Collective works well, what we're trying to build is kind of the most engaged community of portfolio professionals in the world in which people come together, learn from each other, find mentors, mentor others, form work teams you know, to run projects, you know, unform them, learn from each other, bring in experts, etc. So it's a mixture of a platform, kind of like LinkedIn, but for, for, for portfolio professionals, training, community, research, etc. And to a certain extent, we're going to let the community decide where it goes. It's like, you know, mm. yeah, what are your needs? Okay, you want a job board? What should it look like? Okay, let's let's work it out together. So 
We're not a marketplace, as some people might see it, where you just match employers with employees. Yeah. We are on the side of the portfolio professional. It's like, how yeah. can we help you succeed? You know, what right. are, what's the right combination of technology, community, training, knowledge, you know, et cetera, to kind of help those people succeed? And then if we do a good job, hopefully there'll be know, a million plus members in a year's time. Wonderful. Good stuff. All, all the very best with that. And finally, Ben, what final piece of advice would you leave anyone that's listening to this that's thinking about a big career move at the moment? How would you advise them before they take that leap of faith? I would say prioritize your career based on what you learn, not what you earn. So if you think you're going to learn a set of skills that set you up for a good few decades, awesome. Whereas if you, you're getting a job where you're not learning much, but you're kind of paying the bills, yeah, you might be unemployable or unemployed in two, three, four, five years time, and you'll certainly be miserable. So not the money doesn't matter. And you know, there's a minimum you need to pay the bills, but definitely focus on how employable will you be at the end of the job? Not yeah, how fancy a holiday will you have this year? Because let's face it, you can't have a holiday on lockdown anyway. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> All yearning for a holiday. Um, thank you, Ben. Wise words to finish. And um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being a, a great 40-minute mentor. And we wish you all the very best for the, the months and years ahead. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, Ben. I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40-Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.